verse 14, "...but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed." Now, we're talking here about the sins of the flesh. And who's responsible when you're drawn away to do evil and you yield to evil temptation? God's not responsible. And by the way, the devil is not responsible. You are responsible. A man got lost in the hills of Arkansas back in the day of the Model T Ford. And he came into a little town and there were a group of boys playing there. And he said to one little fella that was standing there, he says, where am I? Lost his way and no highway mark or anything. And the little fella looked at him puzzled for just a moment and finally pointed his finger. He says, dar you are. May I say to you, friends, God says, when you ask the question, well, who tempted me to do this? God says, there you are. It's in your own skin. That's where the problem is. Every man, every man, and this is the declaration of the individuality and personality of the race of mankind, every man, just as each of us has a different fingerprint, each one of us has a different moral nature. We have our own idiosyncrasy, our own eccentricity. All of us today have something a little different. One man talking to another. He says, you know, says, everybody today has some peculiarity. And this fellow says, well, I disagree with you. He said, I don't think I have some peculiarity, something unusual. Well, he says, let me ask you a question. He says, do you stir your coffee with your right hand or your left hand? Well, the fellow says, I stirred it with my right hand. Well, he says, you see, that's your peculiarity. Because he says, most people stir it with a spoon. Well, may I say to you, all of us have our peculiarities. One person may be tempted to drink. Another may be tempted to overeat. Another may be tempted in the realm of sex. The problem is always within the individual. No outside thing or influence can make us sin. It must come from within, and the trouble is here. The trouble is inside us today with that old nature that we have. little boy was playing around at night, and his mother heard him in the pantry, and he'd gotten down the cookie jar. And she says, Willie, what are you doing in the pantry? Because she called out, Where are you? And he said, In the pantry. And she says, what are you doing in the pantry? And he said, I'm fighting temptation. Well, he was in the wrong place to fight temptation. But that's the place that a lot of grown people are today. Things are not bad, many things, within themselves. It's the use that's made of them. Food is good, but you can become a glutton. Alcohol is a medicine, but you can become an alcoholic if you abuse it. Sex is good if it's exercised in the area of marriage. And when it's exercised out, why, you're going to have an epidemic as we have today of venereal disease. Why? Because of the looseness today, the new morality. And today, the psychologist is helping us get rid of our guilt complex. That is, many of them are. I've been reading recently of many psychologists and I've known of a Christian psychologist who taught in one of our universities here, and he used to come to my Thursday night Bible study, and he told me one night that he said, you need to emphasize that guilt complex more than you do. He says, a guilt complex is as much a part of us as your right arm. You just can't get rid of it. But the psychologist, the godless psychologist today, he says, climb upon my couch. 
Now he wants to say, are you religious? And the party says, oh, yes. You don't believe in engaging in this sort of thing? A lady called me one day when I was pastor, and she said, Dr. McGee, the most frightful thing that's happened to me, and she says, I have been having a real problem on the edge of a nervous breakdown, and it's been due to certain trials I've been going through. And I went to a psychologist that my doctor had recommended, and he said to me when he found out that I was a Christian, he says, what you need to do is to go downstairs to the bar room and pick up the first man that's there, and you'll get rid of your guilt complex. And then there are those that today that say, what about your background? Did your mother love you? What happened when she conceived you and you were in the womb? And you say, well, my mother was caught in a storm, a rainstorm. And the psychologist says, well, that's the reason you're a drip. Well, he practically says that, and he blames it on the mother. Well, may I say to you that you could solve a great deal of your problems today where you're blaming somebody else, if you just go to the foot of the cross and you would say to the living Lord Jesus, who right now is at God's right hand, say to him, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. And may I say, he'll remove your guilt complex, and he's the only one that can do it. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. Now, the solicitation to sin must have a corresponding response from within. And he says here, from your own lust, an overweening desire and uncontrolled longing, and you're drawn away. The Lord Jesus said, I'll draw all men unto me. And the scoffer says, well, he'll not draw me. Well, he'll not force you. As we saw back in Hosea, he'll only use the bands of love. He wants to woo and win you by his grace and love. And frankly, evil is attractive today. It's winsome. This man Moses, he was caught up at first with the pleasures of sin. And you can be enticed today, and the hook can be baited. And before long, a man becomes an alcoholic or a young person, a dope fiend. Now, notice this. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death." When the desire of the soul, having conceived, gives birth to sin, and the sin, having been completed, brings forth death. Now, this is a tremendous statement. You see, conception is the joining and union of two. And the desire of the soul joined to the outward temptation. You remember, the Lord Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder, because it begins in the heart and moves out to the action. He says, if you look upon a woman to commit adultery with her, you've done it because of the fact in your heart is where it began. And that's where it always began. Is temptation sin? Of course it's not sin. The answer's definitely no. It's when the conception takes place, when the thought in the heart is carried out in action. Martin Luther expressed it in this rather novel way. He said, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Sin is the consummation of the act inwardly and outwardly. And it comes because you and I have that kind of a nature. It bringeth forth finally death. It'll bring forth physical death finally, 
Ask the alcoholic about that. It'll bring spiritual death, and it'll bring eternal death. The habitual and perpetual sinner never had a line of communication with God. May I say to you, the question then is going to arise, can a child of God sin? And the answer is yes. But we need to understand that God never uses that at all. Now, I have not concluded this section here by any means. I want to move a little faster beginning next time. But I want us to see, because God is bringing us down, friends, right where we live today. And James is showing us that this easy morality that we have, this easygoing looking at sin today, God has no part in it whatsoever, and God will judge you. He says he'll do just that. Well, we'll have to hold that till next time. And until then, may God bless you, my beloved. Now, friends, we are in this very wonderful epistle of James. And we're in the section that's labeled the verification of genuine faith. Now, he's dealt in the first 14 verses that God tests faith by trials and temptation, but not the kind of temptation that we think of, temptation to evil. God does not test faith with evil. And the source of our temptation to evil does not come from God. And the very interesting thing is, it doesn't come from Satan either. He doesn't blame the devil for it at all. He made it very clear, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Sin is in the flesh. The temptation is out yonder in front of you. And he uses a very interesting word here, and he'll use it again. Then when lust hath conceived, and the word is actually to become pregnant. And conception is the joining and union of two. It's the desire of this old nature of ours joined to the outward temptation that is out there. And the Lord Jesus made that very clear. If you're angry with your brother, well, it will lead to murder. That's the way premeditated murder begins. And he says, if a man looks upon a woman to commit adultery, he's guilty because it's in his heart and it has to be there and joined with the temptation. May I say to you that the question then naturally arises, is temptation sin? And the answer is no. It was Martin Luther that made the statement, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Now, sin, therefore, is the consummation of the act inwardly and outwardly. The temptation in and of itself, we all have an evil nature. There's no use trying to kid ourselves concerning that. We all have been tempted to do evil. And as we saw last time, everyone has a weakness in the flesh. One person, it may be gluttony, and another, it may be gossip. And both are absolutely of the flesh that comes within. It was only the Lord Jesus that could say, "...the prince of this world cometh and findeth nothing in me." It's very interesting the way this is stated here. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth. You see, there can't be a stillbirth. It's going to bring forth 
something, when that evil thought that's in the heart is joined to the temptation and there is a birth, a birth of the act, it just can't be a stale birth at all. And what does it do? It brings forth sin. We rationalize it today. We rationalize a bad temper. We rationalize gossip today. And we rationalize a lot of polite sins. And right now we are rationalizing away gross immorality. And when it's finished, it'll bring forth death. And that's a very interesting word, death. There are three kinds of death. There is physical death, and that always works itself out. You can be sure of that. And then there's spiritual death, and that's the condition, actually, of the lost man. Dead in trespasses and sins, that's the condition of all of us. And then there's eternal death. Sin works its way out, and it means primarily separation. And for a believer who's been born again, when that sin is born, that is, it becomes an act in his life, then actually it breaks his fellowship with God. And as we saw, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, John says we're lying. We're not telling the truth. You can't have fellowship with him and permit sin to continually happen in your life. Now, the temptation comes, and we can come under great conviction even about temptation, of course, but that is something you cannot help. The great sin, I suppose, today is certainly this matter of adultery, of sex. And we've had so many letters on that. And it's something that every person has been faced with. It's not something new. I think that the emphasis that's given to it and the dress of the hour has led to the committing of adultery probably more than it has been in American history. Certainly, this is what pulled down the great nations of the past, along with the alcohol problem. Actually, wine, women, and song have brought down the great nations of the world. Rome fell from within. But temptation itself, and we want to make that clear, is not sin. Now, I read several years ago a very moving biography of John Wesley, of his younger days. As you know, this man came to this country as a missionary. And after he got here, he cried out. He said, I came to America to convert Indians, and who's going to convert John Wesley? He had a legalistic system, and he never gave up a great deal of that, and that's the reason the church that came from him were called Methodists. They had a certain method, and they emphasized holiness. But John Wesley, when he came to this country, he found himself in the white settlement where the governor that was appointed by the crown was. Well, he was a nobleman, and he was an elderly man, and he had married a young woman. She was very beautiful. Of course, they were rich and the noble have always been able to get the beautiful. And that's the reason even today they're called the beautiful people. And she's a very beautiful young woman. Well, John Wesley lived there. And he came over as a single young man, dynamic, virile young man. He was, I think, probably one of the greatest preachers he in Whitfield the world has ever seen. Well, what do you think happened? Here's this young man 
that's here in this white settlement, going before the governor many times, having to because he's moving out among the Indians. And who would be in the governor's home? Well, it'd be this young wife. Well, I can tell you this, the young wife hadn't married this old boy for love. That was for sure. And here's this very fine-looking young preacher, her age. Well, what do you think took place? They actually fell in love with each other. In fact, this man, John Wesley, was so attached to her. And they had secret rendezvous, but never, never did anything out of line. But he suggested to her that they run away and live among the Indians. And she discounted that. And she's the one that encouraged him to go back to England. She said, I believe God's got a great work for you to do. And it could never work out with you as a missionary and a young minister to run away with me. And we're hooked, only I'm sure she didn't use that statement. But there was no way out, and she urged him to go back. And he went back, but this biographer said the night the ship had to wait for the wind to come up to put out, it was a sailing ship, and when the word was given to get on board, why, she went down to tell him goodbye, and it was the first time that John Wesley actually ever held her in his arms. Now, that was temptation. And it says that he started on board, got on a gangplank three times and came back to her and said, I'm going to stay. And each time she'd tell him that no other way but for him to return to England. And he returned. I've always felt that that was the background for the fact that John Wesley's wife that he finally married, you know, had a habit of getting up in the service and telling everybody what a great sinner he was. And I don't think she ever spelled it out, but she apparently knew something about that background. And John Wesley always took it. He'd just stand there till her tirade is over. Then he'd begin to preach. Imagine a man having that kind of a wife. But John Wesley went back and was saved one night at Aldersgate. And I'll not go into that. But the important thing is this. That was temptation. And that was the temptation of the greatest sort for that young man. And that young woman, but the temptation was not sin. But had he run off into the woods and lived among the Indians with her, that would have been sin. And I have encountered that in my ministry now several times. A man came to me, a fine-looking young man, and talked with me several years ago. He said, I've fallen in love with a very beautiful girl. I want her to be mine. Well, I said, have you asked her? And he said, well, not exactly. Well, I said, why? He said, she's married. Well, I said, you better give that notion up right now. Well, he said, I want to ask you, would it be wrong for her to get a divorce and for us to get married? And I said, I think it certainly would be. I happen to know the couple. He said, she'd be willing to. I said, doesn't make any difference. Now, I said to him, you've been tempted, and I mean tempted a great deal. But I said, as a child of God, you'd never be able to get by with it. And I gave him several instances of cases where they thought they could get by with it and could not be happy. And I know a couple like that today, childless, they're old now, and how pitiful they are because they did that very thing as young Christians. 
It's tragic to see people who think that they can get by with it. When lust conceives, it bringeth forth sin. That's the only kind of little brat that can bring into the world is sin. And sin will bring forth death. It'll bring forth separation, fellowship with God if you're a child of God immediately. And he'll judge you for it unless we judge ourselves so that you don't get by with it. And this, I think, is very important for men and women to see the gay. Well, that man went out. I tried to put the fear of God in him. He was a wonderful Christian. He'd sure been tempted. He came back a week later, and he said to me, Dr. McGee, we've made our decision. Well, boy, I froze. I thought it was the wrong one. And he says, we recognize that in this life, we could never be married, that we never could be joined together. That's entirely out of the question for us. And he says, I'm just asking God someday, probably in heaven, to let us be together. Well, I don't know about those things. I have no answer for anyone like that. I've always felt that if in heaven you didn't want to be with somebody, you didn't have to be with them. And if you wanted to be with them, that you could be with them. And if he wants to be with her in heaven, I think it would be perfectly all right. They need to marry given in marriage there. And he says, I've asked for a transfer. He was with a very large company and to another city. I don't think a month went by before he also, after a morning service, shook my hand, told me goodbye. He was leaving. Well, temptation. There's a lot of that today, my friend. And Christians say, oh, the devil tempted me, or something happened. My friend, the temptation can't conceive until it's joined with your evil nature, that desire of evil nature. And when it is joined together, the important thing is that it'll bring forth sin, and sin eventually bring forth death, and it breaks the fellowship with God. And that is the death, by the way. Now, he goes on here and he says, "...do not err, my beloved brethren." And what he's saying here, do not err. And the word here means to wander or roam about or stray. It's like that sheep the Lord Jesus told about, the little lost sheep, and he went after it. And James is saying here, don't wander. Don't think that somehow or another you can get by with it. You see, the habitual and perpetual sinner definitely never had a line of communication with God. He was never born again to begin with. If you can live in sin and enjoy it, you're not a child of God. It's just that simple, by the way. The story is told about a Calvinist, an Arminian, that was arguing. No, a Calvinist believes you once saved, you can never be lost. And the Arminian believes you can lose your salvation. And the Arminian said, if I believed your doctrine and were sure I was converted, I'd take my fill of sin. And the Calvinist said to him, how much sin do you think it would take to fill a genuine Christian to his own satisfaction? Now, I say that's a tremendous answer. If you can be satisfied in sin, I tell you, you need to examine yourself and see whether you're in the faith or not. He that falls into sin is a man, as someone has said. He that grieves at sin is a saint. He that boasts of sin is a devil. And my friend, all of us are subject to temptation. Let's make sure that we don't have a birth 
because there can be no abortion here if you go through with it. It will work its way out. Now, in verse 17, he gives us the positive side of this, and he says, "...every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning." That is, it's like the other side of the moon is dark, and this side is the light side. But in God, there's no dark side. In all of us, there's a shadow. You and I make a shadow. It said when Alexander the Great had conquered the world and got back to Greece, he looked up his old teacher, Aristotle, and he was so anxious to get to him to tell him what had happened. And so he entered his house, and Aristotle was taking a bath. And he told him what had happened, and he said, Now I'm prepared to give you anything in the world you want. What do you want? Well, Aristotle looked up at him and said, Well, I want you to get out of my light. Alexander the Great was standing in the doorway, shutting out the light. May I say to you, that's all any of us do. We make a shadow. There's no shadow in God at all. And He doesn't vary. God doesn't change. God is not on a yo-yo like a lot of Christians are today, up today and down tomorrow, and round and round they go. No wonder they're not squares. They're going around in circles. And so here, God never changes. God doesn't ever test you with evil. Every good gift comes from Him. And today, the insurance companies, and I can kid an insurance friend of mine, It has in the policy, it says that certain things are excluded, that if certain things happen to your house, that nullifies the policy, or any act of God. And I said to him, well, what in the world do you think God's going to do to my house? Well, he said it could be a cyclone or something like that, an earthquake. And I said, well, do you think God is to be blamed for that? Well, he says that's the way they use the expression. And that, my friend, has been the custom down through the centuries, to blame God. If you got a good gift, it came from Him. Count your many blessings today. The sunshine, the rain, the cloudy day, the bright day, the green grass, the water you drink, the air you breathe. God didn't bring smog. He gave clear air. He gave clean water. It's man that's fouled the thing up. God gives good gifts, my friend. God's good. And few and I knew how good he was. I tell you, break our own heart today. Now he says, Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, here definitely is a reference to the new birth, by the way. And I think that this is very important for us to see today. And how does he beget us? With the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, the word here for beget again is to conceive, conception, or pregnant. And this, again, is something very important for us to see. There are those today that say, well, if I'm predestined to be lost, nothing I can do about it, so forget it. And if I'm to be saved, why, I'll be saved. Well, friends, there are two wills here. 
of his own will begot he us. You can't beget. Now, remember back with evil. You have to have in conception two coming together and no other way. So when his will is joined with your will, you'll be born again. Don't tell me that you are not responsible. It's not his will that any should perish. But you're begotten by the Word of God. When you're willing to come and believe the Word of God and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll be born again, born again, not of the flesh, but of the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. This is tremendous. Now, he says here, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now, again, may I say, this is a very important section that we have come to here. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Now, that means, and he's talking now to a child of God, swift to hear what? Well, the Word of God, of course. Be swift to hear, begotten by the Word of God. But you're not through. You're going to grow by the Word of God. And you've got a Word that's living, quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the natural man out there, the unsaved man, he understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They're foolishness unto him. Why? They're spiritually discerned. Now, you, a child of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, who wants to be your teacher, you have the Word of God, the Creator of this universe, and the Redeemer of lost sinners. He wants to talk to you, wants to say something to you. And the point is, be quick, be alert. I sometimes look at a church congregation, and you know what I feel like doing? I feel like jumping up and saying, wake up, you know, the place is on fire. Get a little movement, a little alertness there. Oh, how today we need to be alert. Be quick, he says, swift to hear, and now slow to speak. You see, God gave us two ears and one mouth, and it must be a very definite reason for that, because there's a danger of us talking too much. Now, I'm going to say something that I know is not very popular today. In fact, I say a whole lot of things that are not very popular, as many of you know. A friend of mine calls me his Listerine. And I ask him why. Well, he says, I hear you twice every day. I don't like it, what you say, but I listen to you twice every day. Listerine's got an ad that commercial that goes something like that. I hate it, but I use it twice every day. Well, that's his statement. And so we make quite a few. Now, there are those that say, oh, the minute you're saved, you're to begin to witness. No, I don't think you're quite ready to witness. Somebody says he got saved last night, and we're going to listen to his testimony today, especially if he's a prominent person, if he's a rich man, or if he's been a gangster, or if he is in the entertainment business, or if he's an outstanding politician. They always try to get him to come in and give his testimony. And that's the reason I don't like to hear these singers give a little talk before they get to their song. They can sing. I don't mind them singing, but actually I've many times just bowed my head in embarrassment at some of the things they'd say. 
this sweet little girl had a lovely voice. She gets up and says, I just been saved two months. And oh, I tell you, I cringed when she said that. And I had a right to because what she said was as contrary to the Word of God as anything possibly be. God says, you be quick to hear, but you be slow to speak. Nobody says, well, aren't we to witness? Yes, but be very careful how you witness. Better make sure about your life first. The story is told about Socrates. A young man is brought to him to enter his school. You know, Socrates was a school teacher and a philosopher. And the young man came and introduced Socrates. And before Socrates could say a word, the young man started talking. He talked for about, well, I suppose, ten minutes, according to the sundial of that day. And Socrates, finally, when the young man finished, he said to him, I'll take you as a student, but I'm going to charge you double. And the young man said, well, why are you going to charge me double? Well, he says, first, I'm going to have to teach you how to hold your tongue, and then how to use it. Quick to hear, but slow to speak. Christians need to be very careful and not reveal their ignorance of the Word of God. Listen to it. Somebody says, but says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. But may I say that he has to know what to say so. And he needs to be very careful about what he says. And I think it's been tragic that some of these entertainers... Now, I had the privilege of teaching the Hollywood Bible class here, spoke to them over a period of several years. And I'll be honest with you, I've listened to some testimonies, and I used to take it upon myself of having a little talk with those that were inclined to get up and give a testimony. Their theology is as rank as it can be. They need to study the Word of God. They don't need to be pushed out front. And I know that's not popular today. Oh, so-and-so's been saved. We want to hear them. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. And then, do you notice what else he says? And be slow to wrath, that is, to anger. Don't argue religion. Lose your temper. It's nice to be a fundamentalist, but don't start fighting everybody in sight that disagrees with you on every little jot and tittle of theology. After all, you don't have all the truth. The Scripture says, be slow to wrath. Don't get angry. Jonathan Edwards, he was the third president of Princeton and probably was one of America's greatest thinkers and also preachers. But he had a daughter that had an uncontrollable temper. And one day, a young man, a very fine young man at the school who had been going with her, fell in love with her, and he came to Jonathan Edwards, which was the custom in that day. Apparently, it's fallen by the wayside now. And he asked for her hand. And Jonathan Edwards says to him, you can't have her. And the young man says, but I love her. And Jonathan Edwards says, you can't have her. And the young man says, but she loves me. And again, Edwards said to the young man, says, you can't have her. And the young man says, well, why can't I have her? He says, because she's not worthy of you. Well, he says, she's a Christian, isn't she? And he says, yes, she's a Christian. But the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. May I say to you, there are a lot of unworthy Christians today with an uncontrollable temper. And that, may I say, spoils their testimony probably as much as anything 
in this life. He goes on to say, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. That's the reason we shouldn't argue religion. I've never found yet anybody that agrees with me a hundred percent or that I agree with them a hundred percent, but that's no reason for me to fall out with him. Someone came in here the other Sunday morning. I was in here at the study. I came down to make a tape, by the way. And the fellow said to me, he says, well, aren't you in church this morning? I said, no. Well, he said, what are you doing? I was running a tape of mine through and listening, actually, to it as it came over the radio. We have a Sunday morning program. And I said to him, I said, you know, I'm listening to the only man that I agree with 100%. And therefore, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. I don't care. You may feel like you're a defender of the faith and all that sort of thing. But my friend, the wrath of man just does not work the righteousness of God. And don't kid yourself that you are angry for his sake. Because he's not angry. He's in a saving business today. Now, verse 21. He says, Now, wherefore, put away all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word. And the word here should be the implanted word of God, which is able to save your soul. That is, you are to receive the word of God. And that is the important thing that he's emphasizing here. And to put away, do you notice what he says here? Put away all filthiness. That's of the flesh. And this is the better translation, the abundance of wickedness, and receive the implanted word. And the word of God is a preventative against the sins of the flesh. I think it's the greatest preventative. The old Scotch preacher says, sin will keep you from the Bible, or the Bible will keep you from sin. And he certainly was accurate in that. It's able to save your souls. Now, he's speaking to those that have been saved, you see. He's talking to those. You receive the implanted word. It's been planted in your heart. It has already brought salvation to you. But you've got a life to live as a Christian. And that is the salvation that he's talking about here. I have been saved. I am being saved. I shall be saved. Salvation is in three tenses. And later on, we go into that in another epistle. Now, you have here in verse 22 what I like to think of as the demands of the Word. And then in verses 23 to 24, the danger of the Word. And then in verse 25, the design of the Word. And in other words, we have here that which is substance, that which really gets down to where we live today. Now, here we have the imperatives or the demands of the Word in verse 22. He says, "...but be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves." Now, a great many people, if there's anything they remember from the epistle of James, this is it. This is a very familiar verse to a great many people. Now, you and I live in a day when we have many translations of the Bible, and they're multiplying every day. Every year, two or three new ones come out. And these new translations, personally, I haven't found one yet that I 
feel is really adequate to take the place of the authorized. I do think it needs improving in certain places, but I still use it, as you well know. But we today do need a new translation. Now, that may seem strange coming from me, and it should be different from Tyndall's or the authorized or the American Standard or any of these new translations. And it must be superior to the modern effort. And you want to know something that may shock you? Did you know that any Christian that's listening to me today can make this new translation? You could make a new translation of the Bible. Well, somebody says, you don't know me. I'm not capable. I'm not familiar with the original language. And I know nothing about the handling of manuscripts. And so, in spite of your limitation, my friend, we may have, and we may have many limitations, but it's still possible to make the best translation of Scripture that's ever been made. And you know what the name of the translation is? It's known as the doer's translation. Be ye doers of the Word. And that's a good translation, by the way, a doer's translation. And we now have come to the real pragmatism of James. Paul put, I think, the same thought in just a little different phraseology when over in Second Corinthians. And you'll recall over there in the third chapter, I think it is, yes, in verse 2, "...ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ." Minister to us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And the world today is not reading the Bible, but they're reading you and me. That's the best translation. And the question in the little poem is, what is the gospel according to you? Now, there's an element about the Word of God that actually makes it different from any other book. Now, there are many differences, but here is one we've not mentioned before. Now, there are many books today that you can read for the information that you can get from them. You can gain knowledge and intellectual stimulation and spiritual inspiration and amusement and entertainment. But the Word of God is different. And this is probably the reason that it's not as popular it demands action. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. It requires attention. The Lord Jesus says, if any man will do his will, he'll know whether the doctrine is true or not. And so this book demands action. Taste to the Lord and see whether it's good. Now, you can read history. It adds nothing to the student. You can read literature. There are no imperatives, no declarations no exclamation. No, you may say it has a lesson, but that probably wasn't in the mind of the author. You can read science. It makes no demands on you whatsoever. You can read a cookbook, and it gives you a recipe. Betty Crocker's got a good cookbook, but she doesn't say you have to cook. There's no demand made there that you cook up a batch of biscuit or make a fudge cake. Now, the Word of God is a command. It's a trumpet. It's an appeal for action. He that believeth on the Son hath life. He that believeth not hath not life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent was his first message. The second, come unto me. And third, believe. And today, the Word of God demands belief. Now, all advertising today is high pressure, being used on radio and TV and billboards and in newspapers and magazines. They use the hard sell. And we are not only brainwashed today by the news on TV and radio, but we're being brainwashed even by advertising. Madison Avenue's throwing everything at the consumer. You are to buy a certain make of car, and you're told how wonderful it is this year over last year. And all they did was make the steering wheel a little smaller, and they made it last year. That's just about the difference. And you're told if you don't use this deodorant, why, well, you'll lose your job. But the Word of God says you're going to die in your sin if you don't turn to Him. And you talk about high pressure, that's high pressure. God says, now is the accepted time. Today, if you'll hear his voice. I think the greatest failure of the church in recent years is at this point in this area here. After the war, and I go back now to World War II, the Western world came out of the bomb shelters and went to church. Fear of the bomb, but not fear of God. Church membership and attendance soared to new height. I'm very thankful I had a ministry during that period. I saw a full church. It was, to me, a glorious, wonderful thing. But at that same time, lawlessness and immorality increased by a hundredfold. Drunkenness, divorce, juvenile delinquency all escalated. And there was a total breakdown of separation What had happened, may I say to you, we were getting the Word of God out in the passive voice and the subjunctive mood, and it's given in the imperative mood. We forgot that a leather-bound Bible needs some shoe leather to go with it. We're memorizing Scripture, but it's also not only memorization, it should be mobile. It should move. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Why? Well, you're going to deceive yourself if you don't put it in action. You see, the imperative here is really for a born-again child of God. God is not asking the unsaved here to do anything except one thing, and that's actually not doing something. They came to him and says, What shall we do that we might inherit eternal life? He says, Do? Why, this is the will of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Doing in God's book for the unsaved is believing on Christ. God is not asking the unsaved here that are listening today to do anything at all except just trust Christ. Now, hearing, though, will lead to doing, not to rote and ritual and habitual action, It's not drab or monotonous. It's not routine. Why, the intent of the Word is to produce creative action, make a productive performance, exciting living, and a thrilling experience. And if we are motivated by the inner desire and we are enjoying spirit-filled living, well, you and I can go out on the golf course and enjoy playing golf. We can enjoy a Bible study equally as well. And, in fact, it'd be a thrill to us. Don't be hearers only. 
there's a difference between a student and an auditor. Now he says, be ye. Now that's not the ordinary verb, amy, for be at all. Actually, it's the word genisthe, and it can be translated to be born. It literally means to become or to be born, something that comes into existence. And it's not the imperative of the regular verb to be, but rather this verb, genisthe, which now means be ye. That is, you have been born again. In other words, he's talking here to believers. God is not asking the unsaved to do anything. God is not asking you to do that. God is talking here to his children. And he doesn't command the devil's children to do anything. As we said, he never spanks the devil's children. And he never asks them to do anything. He doesn't ask the unbelieving world today to do anything. He wants to tell them he's done something. I remember as a boy that we'd be playing baseball on the school lot on Saturday. And that, to me, was a wonderful thing. I played first base, and my I looked forward to that. We played the different teams in the other schools around as high school, and generally ended up in a fight. Didn't make any difference who we played. But one day, I saw my dad coming up. I knew he wasn't coming up to see the game. And he came up and told me that he had an errand, some work for me to do. Fact of the matter is, I had neglected when I left home of taking care of my Saturday chores. And he came up. Now, he didn't ask any other boy there to do anything. He asked me, you know why? I'm his son. <laughs> These other boys weren't his son. God's not asking you till you become, but be ye. Those of you that have become a son of God, now be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now, be a doer of the Word. And this is something that's very important. It's something very difficult for us preachers. I remember back east, I played golf with a doctor friend of mine back there, a wonderful Christian, and a man wanted to join us. And so my doctor friend, who apparently knew him, he shook hands with him, and he says, and this is Dr. McGee here. And, oh, he says, we'll have two doctors. And so I wanted to make clear what kind of a doctor I was. I said, I'm a doctor that preaches, and he's a doctor that practices. Well, we need more DDs that practice, by the way, as well as preach. And that's what he's saying here. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Fire put it in a little poem like this. It's easier to preach than to practice. It's easier to say than to do. Most sermons are heard by the many, but taken to heart by the few. Be ye doers of the word. Now, God is talking to his children, and he is saying that if you're just a hearer of the word, you're only deceiving your own selves. And we need to recognize that he is making it very clear that hearing leads to doing, not to ritual and that which is habitual, not that which is drab or monotonous, not that which is routine. 
And the word for doers here, and by the way, this is where I get my name for the doers translation of the Bible. Actually, it has to do with exciting living, thrilling experience, creative action, doing something for God, motivated by an inner desire. We began this radio ministry and began to build up our staff and I think I have with me here one of the finest staffs, and I know it's the finest I've ever had in my ministry, and it seems that God sent each individual to us, and each one of these individuals has made a marvelous contribution. Those of you who get our logs have commented how attractive it is. I never thought of it, but my secretary does that. These are dedicated workers, and my feeling is that in God's work today, that we need that which is creative, that which is dynamic, that which produces today. And he says, don't be a hearer only. Well, there's a difference between being a student and an auditor in a class. I used to have quite a few auditors come into downtown Los Angeles when I was teaching at the institute there. And I had more trouble with the auditors than I ever did have with students. They were constantly sending me letters and cards telling me I was too hard on the kiddos, and they didn't know that you had to be hard with hard boil. But the kids knew I was kidding half of the time. And somebody wrote a card that says, It's a shame the way you treat God's little lambs. And I read it to the kids, and they let up a big howl. Well, I want to tell you, those little lambs, some of them were old goats. They were hard to get into action, by the way. But those auditors, they never had to take an exam. They never had to make any preparation. They never wrote any papers. They never did any study. And they never got any diploma or any degree. They just sat there. And the very interesting thing is that they just didn't do anything. (laughs) Faith leads to action. It won't make you an auditor. Someone said to a man that got his wagon stuck in the mud, this man was always talking about his faith, and he never did anything for God. He just talked about his faith. And so when the man came along, saw him stuck in the mud and couldn't get the wagon out, he says, well, you sure are well established in the faith. May I say to you, What we need to do today is to keep moving. After we get established, we need to keep moving in the faith and not get stuck in the mud. And he says here, we deceive ourselves. And self-deception is one of the worst things. John says those that say they don't have any sin in their lives. They don't deceive anybody but themselves. And it's very easy to rationalize your actions rationalize the fact you don't do anything. Now, in verse 23, we come to the danger of the Word. And there's this danger. For if any be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. Now, he's like a man that beholds his natural face in a mirror. Actually, the word mirror here refers in that day to a very highly polished piece of brass that was used. And a mirror is a very interesting thing. It's a picture of the Word of God. When you look into a mirror, you get a reflection of yourself. You see yourself in the mirror. And you see yourself as you really are. 
You remember the fiery story that, and I forget a lot of the fiery stories, but this one I know concerned, I think it was two sisters. One was very beautiful and the other was not. And the one that was not was very much concerned and she did everything she could to make herself beautiful and she'd go look in the mirror. And the mirror talked back to her. Uh, She'd say to the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? Well, Mary told her. (laughs) And the Word of God is just like that. The Word of God tells you just what you are, just as you are. If you have seen pictures of President Lincoln, you know that there's some pictures, there's a wart on the side of his cheek. On others, it's not there. The artists that wanted to paint him began to have President Lincoln to move around. He says, President Lincoln, would you sit here? And then this man would move his easel, and he'd have him shift a little. And President Lincoln began to smile because he saw what he was doing. He was trying to get him into a position where the wart would not show. And then finally the man was satisfied. Now he says, President Lincoln, how do you want me to paint you? President Lincoln says, paint me just like I am wart and all. Well, that's what the mirror will tell you. You've got a wart. It'll show it up. The Word of God tells you what you are. And that is one of the reasons that many of us don't like to spend too much time in the presence of a mirror. Now, there's something else here that is quite interesting. For if any be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. Well, somebody says there ought to be a woman. Well, the woman carries a little mirror around with her to make sure her makeup's on straight. But what about men? Do they look in mirrors? They're just as vain, friends. And there's always a mirror in a man's washroom, just the same as there is in the women's, because the man likes to make sure his tie's straight and his hair is combed as it should be, and especially the way they wear it today, almost in a hairnet, and they spray it so that we're living in that kind of a day when the way you look seems to be very important, and a mirror, therefore, reveals that. Now, there's a danger, though, of looking into the mirror and seeing your natural face in the mirror and not having an effect upon you. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and immediately forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now, what he's doing here is answering what he had said before. Up in verse 19, he says, "...be swift to hear, slow to speak." And the thought in being swift to hear means to give it all your attention. Be alert to the Word of God, as we indicated before. Now, what he's saying here, don't treat it casually. Don't go over it hurriedly like that. For any man that's just a hearer of the Word and not a doer, if it doesn't lead to action, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. He beholdeth himself, and he goeth this way, and immediately forgetteth what manner of man he was. The Word of God says you're a sinner. You read that, you don't like it. You pass over it. And that's the reason today that My feeling that textual preaching is outmoded. I think that we need to go through the Word of God, not pull out nice sweet verses here and there. God gave it not in verses, by the way. Verses are man-made. And I think that 
You're to take it as it is, just like that. And it's a mirror that reveals what you are. The Word of God, I think, today is crystal clear. It reaches down and tells you who you are. Why, a man that goes to a doctor and has an X-ray made, as I did, and it reveals a cancer, and the doctor says, I've looked at that X-ray. You've got seven spots on your lung. Now, I could have said, look, doctor, I don't put much confidence in X-rays, and I just think I'll ignore it and forget it. And I've known a lot of people that have done that. They have died. I wanted treatment just quick as I could get treatment, if you please. So you can't afford to read the Word of God and not respond to it, because it demands you respond, and if you don't, you are responsible. Now, if the doctor tells you you've got cancer in your lung and you do nothing and die, is the doctor responsible? And he absolutely is not responsible at all. And God has given you his word. That's what James is talking about. And he uses this illustration, like a man. And, of course, it means a woman, too. And the word will take him back to when he was born again. Now, what he's saying is, look, you're not growing. You're actually leaving your first love. And he says, remember. And God's calling them back. There's a danger today, as I heard a song leader down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's a good country boy from North Georgia. And he got up and he says, now, let's stand up and sing, standing on the promises. And he says, the trouble is we sing standing on the promises when we're sitting on the premises. Well, that's what we're told not to do here. The mirror is one that reveals, and we're not to forget what it said. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It reveals us as we are and penetrates below the surface. And the Bible today is not a popular book, I don't think. It's the bestseller, but the worst read. It just shows you who you are. Many years ago in East Tennessee, this story went around that uh, tourists came and camped up in the mountains among uh, some of these mountaineers, and they didn't see many tourists in those days. And when these tourists left after they had been camped for about a week, one of these mountaineers, he went looking around where they camped, and he found several things. And among them, he found a mirror that had been left by the tourists. And he'd never seen a mirror before. And he looked into it longingly. And when he looked at it, he said to himself, I never knew my pappy had his picture took. Well, actually, he was looking at someone that looked like his father had looked. But he's looking at himself, you see. And so he was very sentimental about it. He slipped into the house and climbed up in the loft on the ladder, and he hid the mirror. And his wife saw him do that. She didn't say anything. But after he went out of the house, she went up to look around what it was he's taken up there to hide. And she found the mirror, and she looked in it. And she said, so that's the old hag he's been running around with. May I say to you, it's so easy to read the Word of God and think it's a picture of somebody else picture you, and it's a picture of me, my friend. Now, we have here a design of the Word in verse 25. 
He says here, But whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth in it, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Now, notice it's not word, doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. And the thee ought not to be. That's just the doer of work, if you please. Now, here's the design of the word. The thing of it is, the mirror would be down on the ground, and that day you'd have to stoop down. It means you need an humble mind and the perfect law of liberty. And this is not the Mosaic law, it's the law of grace. And we're going to be talking about that James does not talk about law here in the way Paul did. When Paul talks about law, it's the Mosaic law. When James talks about it, it's the law of faith, because there is the law of faith also. There's love and law in the Old Testament, and there's law and love in the New Testament. If the Son make you free, ye shall be free indeed. But wait a minute. He said, if ye love me, keep my commandments. He also said, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law. What law? His law. And John says in his first epistle, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. When you're driving down the freeway and it's loaded with traffic, also that freeway's loaded with laws. And if you want to have freedom to drive down that, you sure better obey the laws or you'll be in trouble. Now, there's liberty in Christ, and it's the only true freedom. You can be sure of one thing, that when you're in Christ... You're going to obey him. His laws are not hard. They're not rigorous. And because you're a child of God, your freedom doesn't entitle you to break the Ten Commandments. The laws are for the weak. The laws were given to the natural man. But now there are laws for the child of God, and that's very important, by the way. Now, honest citizens do not need the law. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not know one half of the laws of this state in which I live. I'll tell you this, every shyster lawyer does, and you know why? Because he's seeking loopholes to break those laws. So that God has been calling his children to a higher level, and the child of God has a spiritual spontaneity, a high and lofty motive, an inspiration of God. The believer does not want to murder. He lives above the law. He's now motivated by the love of the Savior, and he wants to obey him. Now, the more we read and study the Word, we'll learn, and then we'll love, and then we're going to live. And joy fills and floods the soul. We're not like a galley slave whipped and chained to a bench and doing that which we do not want to do. Does God ask the unsaved to be a doer of the word? Well, yes, this word. Then said he unto this man that came, What shall I do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto him, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. In other words, today you and I may not need to know the laws of our state, all of them, are of this country, for that matter, but we certainly do need to know the Word of God if we're to live for Him. And I don't agree with that popular song today that I don't know whether it's rock or not, but it's modern music. It says you don't need to understand, you just need to hold His hand. 
Well, my friend, you do need to understand. You're not apt to be holding his hand unless you do understand. My feeling is that there are too many folk that are too ignorant of the Word of God. It's no disgrace to be ignorant. I don't know about you. I was born ignorant. I didn't even know A from B when I was born. Couldn't even talk. Couldn't even walk. I was in bad shape. But I didn't stay in that shape. And you didn't either. Today, it's no disgrace to be ignorant. It's a disgrace to stay ignorant for a child of God. And that is what he's talking about here. Now he says, If any man among you seem to be religious... And bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. Now, he's talking here about religion today. This is quite interesting. That word religious and religion, these words are actually words that are not Bible words. They occur very few times in the New Testament. I don't think that you'd find the word religion occurring over half a dozen times in the New Testament. James uses it here more than anyone else. Actually, the word religion comes from a Latin word that means to bind back. And you find Herodotus in the Greek using the word. was not a word used very commonly in the Greek at all. And he spoke of the religion of the Egyptian priests. And it has to do with going through a ritual and a form and a ceremony and that type of thing. Now, there are many religions today. They can demonstrate that they have faithful, zealous followers. But may I say to you, I don't think you could call any of them Christian just because you conform to certain outward forms of ritual. Because Christianity, in my book, as I've said many times, is not a religion at all. It's a person. And that person is Christ. And you either have him or you don't have him. Now, this is something that is quite obvious. Even a religious man, if he doesn't bridle his tongue, doesn't control his speech, why, that man, his religion, regardless of what it is, is vain. Now, what about the Christian? Well, now, he's going to have a great deal a little later on to say about the child of God and about this matter of the tongue. And I'm going to save that till I get to that chapter. And by the way, I can't wait till I get to chapter 3 to talk about the tongue, the tongue today that needs bridling. Someone has said that you can't believe half you hear today, but you can repeat it. And that's the problem in the churches. We have too many people that have an unbridled tongue. And now he says, what is pure religion? Now, if you want really a religion and that which is undefiled, and I think that we need to recognize that right here, Pure religion that's undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, this is a tremendous statement here. Now, pure here means in the sense it's the positive side, and undefiled is in the negative side. You'd have to have both if you had 
the right kind of a religion. And certainly Christianity ought to produce this. Now, on the positive side, he says to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. And that means this. A child of God ought to be in contact, and I mean personal contact, with the sorrow of the world and the problems of the people of the world. Now, that's where the politicians today become very clever. They got it from the Bible, by the way. They've gone out and met the people, shake their hands. They've made the personal contact. Now, I don't think they help people very much. But you and I today rejoice in this. And I read a letter like that today. Here's a man that apparently makes contacts. And he found out that two people that he talked to listened to our program. And they were able to make suggestions to him. One to get logs of the program to give out. And the other one that we had notes and outlines. And he didn't know that. And I don't know how he could keep from knowing it if he listens to the program since we say it so often. And maybe that's the reason we need to say it often, so that people will respond. Now, that is getting down where the people are. And I feel today there's a grave danger of the fact that we have a religion of the sanctuary, and we do not have one of the street, and we need that. And that means that if we're in contact with the world, we should be in contact with the world with a tenderness and a kindness and a helpfulness. Now, look here at the negative side. He keeps himself unspotted. Now, contact with the world does not mean to be implicated in the things of the world. The Lord Jesus said, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. And therefore, you and I are to bring in a personal contact. Now, I could give here illustration after illustration of that. I think of one of a little boy and his mother died. And the father tried to raise the little fella, and of course he had to work. And a couple became interested in the little fella. And they were a wealthy couple and relatives. And they said to the father, you are not able to give the boy everything in life. He was a poor man. We are wealthy. We can give him everything. And so the father went to the little boy to talk to him, give him a sales talk about, you know, going and living with these folk. And he said to the little fella, they'll give you a bicycle. They'll give you toys. They'll give you wonderful gifts at Christmas time. And they'll take you on trips and... They'll do things for you that I can't do for you. And the little boy says, I don't want to go. And the father says, why? He says, they can't give me you. That's what the little fella wanted. And there are a lot of people today, friends, out yonder that want that personal contact. And you can bring in a Christian contact with these people with sweetness and love and consideration and kindness. But let's remember to keep ourselves unspotted from the world because you can get so implicated in that it becomes a very dangerous thing.